You know, prison is a great place to gain perspective on life. Author Alexander Dumas' 1844 classic, The Count of Monte Cristo, illustrates this very well. The protagonist of the story, his name is Edmund Dantes, and he was betrayed by his best friend, Fernando uh, Mondego, and he was unjustly sent to the most vicious uh, prison in France called the Chateau d'If. And as he entered his cell, he was escorted by the wicked warden, whose name was Dorliac. And he sees this inscription that has been scratched into the wall that says this, God will give me justice. And in an attempt to dishearten Dantes, Dorliac, the, the warden said, people are always trying to motivate themselves or to keep calendars but soon they lose interest or, or they die. And I'm, all I am left with here is this rather unsightly wall, I'm afraid. So I've conceived another way to help our prisoners keep track of time. Every year on the anniversary of their imprisonment, we hurt them. Usually, uh, just a simple beating, really. Although on their first day here, and in your case, I like to do something rather special. And if you are thinking now... And he takes out this whip and starts uh, preparing it. If you're thinking, why me, God? The answer is, God has nothing to do with it. In fact, God is never seen in France this time of year. And though obviously terrified, Dantes answered, God has everything to do with it. He knows everything. He's everywhere. He sees everything. And Dorliac responds by saying, all right. Let's make a bargain, shall we? You ask God for help, and I will stop as soon as he shows up. And with that, he begins to whip the defenseless Edmund Dantes. Dorliac's uh, bargain is shockingly cruel, but Alexander Dumas uh, is only putting on paper what many of us cry in our hearts every single day. Where is God in my suffering? If God truly loved me, he wouldn't let this continue uh, or ever even happen in the first place. If God would just show up, then all of this could be over. But as it is, he either doesn't care or he doesn't exist. You see, if there's one aspect in human life that all of us share, it is the difficulty and pain in life. Job said in Job chapter 5, verse 7, he said, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. If you've ever had a fire, bonfire, whatever, you can understand his sentiment. Every one of us has experienced hurt by other people, either by their hands or their words. And these wounds, they, they, they go deep, and they stick with us for a lifetime. Every single one of us feels the pain of a frail body. We feel the effects of aging or the destructive power of sickness that weighs heavily upon us. Well, this, the text that we're looking at this morning uh, begins the story of one who had every reason to ask, where in the world is God in my situation? It's a story of how a 17-year-old kid 
is betrayed by his very own brothers, sent into slavery. You know, it's one thing to be uh, hurt by a boss or a coworker or maybe a close friend, but to be hurt by someone in your own family, those wounds go deep. What are we to do when the wounds go deep, when we're scared, when we are wondering how God could possibly be part of my experience? And then we enter deep into the story of Joseph because it is in the story of Joseph that we see the redemptive work of God in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our suffering. Ironically, our text today doesn't even mention the Lord. Doesn't say his name. Uh, doesn't even really give passive reference to him. But his fingerprint is all over the words. And if we want to see his hand in our suffering, we should consider three things this morning. And that the first is, is that we need to read the fine print of faith. We need to read the fine print of faith. I'm fascinated by prescription drug commercials. Uh, you know, the ones that, that uh, typically feature uh, an attractive middle age to, uh, to older men and women who are doing some sort of physical activity, and then they have the confessional. You know, I have uh, such and such disease, but I'm not going to let that hold me down. Uh, introducing, you know, fill-in-the-blank medicine, a new drug uh, for mild and severe cases of whatever the disease or the disorder may be. And then it's obvious uh, that the advertisement wants to see how this person's life has dramatically changed since they've took this, uh, uh, this medicine. And honestly, anyone watching that commercial, if they suffered from that, uh, uh, that disorder or that disease, would want to, uh, to take that medicine and, and, and live a life as if uh, these active people are living. And they want to call and schedule and talk to their doctor uh, about this. But then comes the disclaimer, Right? Well, this medicine is not for anyone. And if you have this or that, you shouldn't take this. And then the curtain really opens, doesn't it? It says uh, they rattle off the side effects, both the mild and the severe. When I watch these commercials, I go from being, wow, this is a miracle drug, to thinking, who in their right mind would want to take these drugs if, if all of these side effects are possible side effects for, for taking it? But the fact of the matter is that if we let side effects get in our way of looking at a potentially better quality of life, uh, even something as simple as, as Tylenol we would avoid because of potential side effects. But as it is, we know our condition, and we read the label, we read the small print of the pharmaceutical, uh, of the pharmaceutical literature, and we take our meds because we know that the benefits outweigh the, the risks. And when it comes to, to faith in Jesus Christ, there are many in the church who, who eagerly receive him uh, and his benefits, but they fail to read the fine print of faith. Perhaps they come uh, to Jesus under the premise that their life will somehow get better. And it might, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, we're relieved from guilt. We're relieved from shame. We're, we're relieved from, uh, from that, uh, that stuff that we feel uh, uh, from, uh, from the guilt we have. We are forgiven and free. We're reconciled with God. But just like the prescription medicines, faith has, sm has small print with mild to severe side effects. 
You know, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And our text today shows how if we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will experience suffering. Now, last week, we, we learned about Joseph, the 17-year-old who was the 11th of 12 brothers, yet he held the, the affection and the love of his father to a greater extent than his brothers. And we saw this chiefly in the fact that after Joseph had, had snitched on his brothers for something that uh, may or, they may or may not have done, uh, his father doesn't uh, chastise him for the rumors or the exaggeration, but rather rewards him. He gives him this robe that, that resembles a royal robe, much to the chagrin of his, his brothers. And soon after this, Joseph then had two dreams, both of which depicted all of his brothers, and the second one, his mother and his father, bowing down to him in worship. And through all of this, the hatred and the jealousy of his brothers increased. Now, in verses 12 and following, Joseph's brothers, they were off pasturing the, uh, the flock of Jacob near Shechem, which is about 50 miles north of where, uh, where they were. Uh, and you can immediately see the problem here. Joseph isn't with them. And perhaps it was because he was the favorite, and he got to stay home and watch TV while his, his brothers were off doing the dirty work of, of shepherding which is another reason for hatred and jealousy. Joseph doesn't need to go to a far distant land to work with us. What is with that? Amazingly, Jacob sends Joseph out to see if they're okay. And the word there for okay is, is shalom. He wants Joseph to go and check on the shalom of his, of his brothers. And Shechem is is the place, if you remember a few chapters ago, where Levi and Simeon wiped out all of the men and uh, he, they looted the place, plundered their goods, kidnapped the women and children. So you can see that maybe they are in danger and Jacob is concerned about their safety. So he sends Joseph, the obedient kid, who obliges to go and find them. Joseph, get the gravity of this. Joseph leaves home for the last time. He will not come home until he comes home in a box full of his bones. He ends up getting some intel that, that his brothers are actually just a few miles north. Uh, and when he does, um, when he's in view of them, his brothers now want to take advantage of the opportunity from being far from home and away from their father. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. These brothers were not, they weren't simply interested in picking on him. They weren't interested in, in, uh, in giving him a lesson or teasing him. Their bitter and hate-filled hearts were thirsty for Joseph's blood. 
It increased when they saw that as he was drawing near to them, they could tell that it was him because he had that fancy robe that their father had given him, that symbol of favoritism. And it's amazing to me how we can plan and justify sin so quickly. It's as if they, they pull the whole plan out of thin air. Look at verses 19 and 20. They, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So in their minds, killing him would kill the dreams and would destroy his position with their father. Now, thankfully, their older brother Reuben steps in, and he has some sense. Verse 21 but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. So Reuben's intentions probably aren't great. He is, uh, he's already on Jacob's bad side, because in order to anger his father a number of chapters ago, he slept with one of Jacob's wives, Bilhah. We're not dealing with good guys here. So in verse 22 goes on to say that he might rescue him out of the hand, out of their hand to, re to restore him to his father. Now, my guess is that Reuben is not as interested in restoring Jacob. Uh, restoring Joseph to Jacob as he is as restoring Reuben to Jacob. He wants to get a good name back with his father. So Joseph shows up, tells, uh, and, and verse 23 tells us that his brothers strip him of this royal robe and they throw him into a dry cistern. Take in the picture here for just a second. A 17-year-old kid, and I'm sorry for teenagers for calling you kids, but 17-year-old kid, naked, physically, and emotionally, is sitting scared at the bottom of a pit that his own brothers threw him into. And what do they do? Verse 25 tells us they went for a picnic as if nothing happened. And as they're eating, they notice that a band of Ishmaelites show up who are going to Egypt, which is uh, ironic because uh, the Ishmaelites are, are, are distant cousins to the Israelites. And seizing another opportunity, Judah, who is sort of the king of opportunities, as we'll see next week, Judah says, verse 26, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So Judah's plan here is, 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 is twofold. Uh, first, they would make a profit by getting rid of this pain in the neck. But second, uh, they would also get rid of him without his blood being on their hands. They could appease their conscience by saying, we didn't kill him. 
But in the ancient Near East, to sell someone into slavery is the same as committing murder. By doing this, Joseph's life, it's over. He's got nothing left. So though they may not be physically responsible for his death, they are morally responsible for this. And verse 28 then is perhaps the most sobering part of this entire passage. And then Midianite traders, Ishmaelite, we're talking the same things here, traders passed by and they drew Joseph up out, and this is his brothers, his brothers drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph's story is a chilling reminder to us who want to live a pleasing life to the Lord. Far too often we look at these Old Testament stories as if they're like Aesop's fables. That they're just good moral principles that we ought to live by. That we ought to take away from Joseph here is that we ought to hold our head high. Grace guys are going to clear up. Put on a happy face. When the truth is, living in obedience to God, many of us have, are, or will suffer, some greatly. Right now, our brothers and sisters throughout all of the world are being persecuted violently for their faith. I believe the day for that is, is coming here in America sooner than later, but for now, many of us will lose family members because of the gospel. Many of us will have strained relationships with the people that we love. Some of us have been mocked and scorned. There is a fine print of faith. Uh, 2 Timothy again says, uh, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14.22 Through many trials and tribulations, we, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans 8.36, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, living a faithful life does not guarantee a smooth and easy life. But I want to propose to you that suffering at the hands of wicked people, though it's painful and it's difficult, is a glorious thing in the sight of our God. Though it is hard, we must trust that God is doing something in our suffering. And that leads us right into our second point, that we need to trust God and his plan in suffering. Trust God's plan in hardship. So we've looked at the, the what of this passage. Now let's take a look at the why. You know, the best stories uh, the, that I love to read never answer the questions early in the, in the best books or movies. The truly great ones are the ones that pull everything together at the end and show you how uh, all the pain and all the heartbreak and all the struggle were worth it. And the story of Joseph is no different. Though he was this annoying little brother, 
He didn't deserve what he got. And as he was sold to the Ishmaelites, verse 36 tells us that he was sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, we might not see it here, but that's, there's some hope in, the, in that language there, that he is in a highly respected person's house, even as a slave. But, before, but uh, we won't get that hope before we read that he is falsely accused of rape, that he will be thrown in prison, that he'll be, he'll be forgotten about in prison until he's finally raised to the position of prime minister of all Egypt when he comes up with a plan to save the known world from famine and when his brothers eventually come to him for help Joseph isn't vengeful he doesn't say it's time for me to get them back he says in chapter 50 verse 20 as for you you meant this for evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And it's here that we see God's sovereignty in our suffering and the goodness of his plan coming together. There is no way that we can read any bit of Joseph's story as a coincidence. God has his hand in everything and this is why paul wrote in romans chapter 8 verse 28 uh, and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose now we throw this verse out a lot in a church but it is not cliche some of us have gone through some really really rough things in our life and it's a comfort to know that God is not unaware of these things. It's helpful to know that God is not helpless. Even when we feel helpless, God is working. What we find in the story of Joseph is a reality that many of us don't want to face. That God can and will ordain suffering in your life to make you more like Jesus and to write a story in your life that points to his glory and his goodness. There is nothing better that God can do for you than to make you more like Christ. And if we want to be made more like Jesus, it isn't going to happen when things are easy. Scripture says that Jesus was a man of sorrow who was acquainted with grief. Jesus knew rejection. Jesus knew fear. Jesus knew emotional and physical pain. And if we want to be more like him, our hearts must be linked with what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He says, for his sake, that's Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, which is a very interesting word, by the way, in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We also have to be okay with the fact that God does not allow suffering into our lives always for our ultimate good and for our becoming like Christ. But he will sometimes allow suffering in our lives for the good of other people. I firmly believe that Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers so that one day they could see their folly and their foolishness. And they could see God's hand in it and give him glory. When you look at God's plan through your suffering, you must trust that God may be allowing your suffering for the eventual redemption or destruction of those that harm and abuse you. In both cases, God is glorified. And because we must recognize that God has a plan, that, that he is working in the midst of our suffering, we must thirdly leave the hard stuff to God. Leave the hard stuff to God. Verses 29 and following detail what happened to Joseph after he was carted off. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. Where shall I go? Obviously, his dream of being the hero in this situation is now gone. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is no doubt, is without doubt, torn to pieces. Now, if we were to do a straight uh, reading of this chapter, it isn't until we come to this point now that we start seeing the, the redemptive dots of what God is doing in this chapter coming together and connecting. You see, the brother's solution to cover up their sin was to take this special robe of Joseph, tear it apart, slaughter a goat, 
and dip the robe in blood to deceive their father. Now, there's a bit of irony here, isn't there? Because it was a slaughtered goat that Jacob used to deceive his father just a generation ago. And though the sons of Jacob would use this goat to cover up their sin 400 years or so later, God would instruct his people in Leviticus chapter 6 to use the blood of goats for a sin offering to the Lord. It was not to to cover up an offense, but to cover it in the sight of God on behalf of his people. This covering would only be until God's perfect offering, Jesus Christ, would come and cleanse them completely. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And later in verse 10, it says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what Joseph's brothers needed more than anything was not to cover up their own wickedness through a sacrifice of some goat, but rather to be covered by the blood of the one that Joseph is pointing towards, Jesus. It is only through Jesus' blood that Joseph, his brothers, you and me, our abusers, and those that hurt us, and the entire world can have our sins removed. It doesn't matter if we've sold our, our, our sibling into slavery or if we've lied or if we've committed adultery or if we've stolen or even if we have murdered. When we trust in Christ, his blood wipes our wrongdoings clean and we are made right with God. So just as Joseph paid a great play, uh, price by his sale in slavery, in order to save God's people from extinction, from famine. Jesus, to a greater extent, was killed on a cross. And three days later, was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God, bringing us freedom, salvation, and eternal life. Joseph was sold to wicked men for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus' life was sold for 30. Jesus wouldn't be handed off to the market, but to the executioners. And just as Joseph, in all of his talking in the earlier part of 37, suffered in silence, so Jesus opened not his mouth. And it results in our praise of God's glorious grace. Again, Paul writes to the persecuted church in Rome, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know that for those who love God, All things, all things work together for good for those who are called 
according to his purpose. And what he was doing was telling us that our stories are not that much different from Joseph. Joseph offers us comfort in difficult times. Though God is not ever mentioned once in this whole story, in 37, his fingerprint is on every single word. And God may not always seem like he is front and center in your life. He is still in control. He has his hand on every single detail. God can use the sinful works of others to further his plan of salvation to make you more like Christ. So the question I want you to wrestle with is will you today trust that God is big enough to handle whatever it is that you're going through? Read the fine print and leave it at his feet. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emmanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on the schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known.